Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Overbearing governments are nothing new. Humanity has had to deal with them throughout time and across the world. Professor Emily Anhalt joins me today to talk about how the ancient Greeks dealt with their tyrants and what lessons we can learn from them today. Welcome to Future Imperfect. Hello, my name is Emily Katz-Anhalt. Uh, I teach classical languages and literature at Sarah Lawrence College in Bronxville, New York. I hold a PhD in classical philology from Yale University. And my recent book is called Embattled, How Ancient Greek Myths Empower Us to Resist Tyranny. Now that's fascinating because the ancient Greek culture still resonates through vast amounts of our, particularly Western culture or Western European culture or cultures that come from the Western European culture, like the United States, for example. So do you want to tell us a bit more about, about that? Because it's a very wide period in history, isn't it? Well, I can also sort of tell you how I started thinking about this project. Um, classics tends to be a very insular field, and classicists tend to be thinking about these texts, but not necessarily communicating what they're thinking to the wider world. But as you say, these texts do resonate throughout our own culture and literature. And I think they're an important piece of the conversation, particularly when we're thinking about multiculturalism. So removing discussion of classical text seems to impoverish us, particularly in today's moment when we seem to be moving towards authoritarianism and various forms of authoritarian populism. I think this is a worldwide movement. It's not just in the U.S. And the remarkable thing for me is that the ancient Greeks pioneered a movement in the opposite direction, that is away from authoritarianism and away from tribalism toward broader forms of political participation, exemplified most famously by the uh, Athenian democracy of the fifth century BCE. And the remarkable thing is that their stories, that is the, the stories we call ancient Greek myths, give us a window onto that process. What is it people need to be thinking about 
and valuing and prioritizing in their own lives and in, in looking at the way other people are behaving uh, in order to have a successful movement towards broader political participation. So I began to focus on the archaic myths, the, the stories told in the Homeric epics and in Greek tragedies later on. There's a big gap. There's a good 250 years between the earliest formulation of the Homeric epics and the uh, tragedies. So we can see how these stories were, were continuously evolving and revising attitudes. Obviously, when we look back at the past, we tend to put things into broad categories, which do encompass in many cases, you know, multiple centuries. And of course, if we look back on our recent past, it would be really weird to summarise the 20th century of Western culture in, in a few words or, you know, in a, in a few generalisations. But I suppose the further back we go, we have sort of less to go on in some ways. Do we have a clue how much text is actually missing? Well, part of the problem is that these texts have often been co-opted in the service of oppressive regimes. And they have been used to justify all sorts of forms of subjugation, colonialism, imperialism, and so forth. But if we go back to the actual Greek texts, we can see that what they are doing is challenging some of these conceptions about how people are behaving in the world. And this brilliant insight that they had that tyrannical behavior is actually self-defeating, not just horrible for the people who are victimized by it. It's not in your own best interest to behave tyrannically or to facilitate tyrannical behavior. But back to your question, I didn't really answer your question about the, the paucity of the surviving material. For me, the great tragedy of Greek tragedy is that maybe three to 10% of the tragedies that were performed in ancient Athens have survived to this day. Wow. That's just a tiny fragment. We only have complete works from three tragedians Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides, and, and there were many other tragedians. Um, just to give you an example of how skewed our surviving sample may be, the, the play that's probably the most well-known that we know as Oedipus the King or Oedipus Rex, that play won third prize the year it was performed, third out of three. <laughs> that's like coming in second at a football game. <laughs> so this is a problem. We are definitely looking at a small sampling. So we know it came, it came third out of three because we have a reference to that competition. Exactly. It's another really interesting feature of, of Greek culture. It was an incredibly competitive culture, but they had this realization that physical competition would inevitably be destructive. And you can see this in the Homeric epic, the, the conception of victory that you know, I win, you lose, and somebody inevitably suffers. But then they had this recognition that you could have verbal competition and that could be constructive and everybody could benefit from a resolution that was arrived at verbally. And this, of course, is the basis of democratic thinking, right? We have to recognize that we need to resolve our conflicts using words, not swords. And we can see that in, in, in these works. Where did these ideas come from? Do we know? Do we have a clue? Did they, did they sort of arrive to the Greeks sort of uniquely or did it come from other places and Greece just focused and built them up or... So we have these tales that we call, uh, you know, Homeric epics, the Iliad and the Odyssey. And the remarkable thing, the, the scholarly consensus is that these tales were originated as oral stories that were just sort of told at, maybe at gatherings, family gatherings or tribal gatherings over centuries, many centuries evolved. We don't know when they first began to be told. There may be some kernel of historicity 
to this, this tale of the Trojan War. There may have been some probably much smaller expedition than the stories have it of Greeks against Trojans. But the stories didn't, they weren't actually written down until sometime in the sixth century BCE. They, they probably coalesced into something very much like the Iliad and the Odyssey in the eighth century BCE. So they were still being revised, if you will, um, until they were fixed as fixed texts sometime in the sixth century BCE. And we, and we don't even know exactly when that was. At that point, though, they stopped evolving substantially. Now, when the tragedians came along, they drew on this wealth of precursor material, and we can see glimpses of it. There are glimpses, there's a small reference to Oedipus in the Odyssey. There are references to other plots of Greek myths. We have them sort of in very cryptic form. So we know that these stories were there, but for the Greeks, this was their history until historians in the fifth century BCE drew a line in the sand and said, wait a second, these tales happened too long ago to be verifiable. So I'm going to write about things that I've seen or known myself or have heard from eyewitnesses uh, because those I can fact check. And even that concept of verifiability as a criterion for truth, that is something that we owe to the ancient Greeks. That's fascinating because the, the medieval mind did seem to very much mix up myth, legend. I mean, you, you had the, you've got the Judeo-Christian tradition overlaid on pagan elements. You've got the idea that these places really exist in the world. You've got ideas that Jerusalem is the physical centre of the world because it has to be, because that makes lots of sense in the Judeo-Christian tradition. And Eden is to the east and you can get to heaven physically. And if you actually would sit down and analyse it, it doesn't make any sense at all. It's, it's a brilliant melange of ideas. And there are things like the Mundi, which you know, were basically tourist attractions for cathedrals, that have these things literally drawn out for people to see. And so it appears that the Greeks were sort of very aware of the fictionalization of history. As you said, you know, that there's this point at which they went, hang on, this could all just be made up. We can only really write about what we actually know. Is that, is that a thing that they did? I don't think it was such a dividing line. I think even once you introduce that principle of verifiability, you don't instantly get adherence to that view. So, so the notion that these stories that have been swirling for centuries that you've known forever and your grandfather and your great-grandfather knew them, they don't just disappear as valid history. But I think you begin to see that looking at things that you can verify, that there's value to that. So, for example, in the Odyssey, you have a whole section of the story it's told in the first person narration by the protagonist. And it introduces the idea of the unreliable narrator, because most of the really fanciful elements in that story, the third person narrator never vouches for. So you begin to cultivate this ability to, to be skeptical. You know, Odysseus describes a trip to the underworld and back. Really? <laughs> you believe that? So I think there's this opportunity to cultivate that ability to assess the facts on their merit. And that is such a fundamental feature of democratic society. You know, autocrats want us to just accept what we're told and not be skeptical, not be questioning. Absolutely. Well, they want to undermine educational principles, not even the evidence we have. They literally don't want you to know that there might be other viewpoints because it's easier to control people, I suppose, that way. Exactly. And so the, the Greek stories include supernatural elements. And one of the things that I notice with my students is a very challenging aspect of, for example, the Homeric epics, 
the gods are so prevalent in these stories. I have students tell me, well, the gods do everything in the story. But if you look closely at the narrative, all of the plot points turn on human choices and human decisions. And one of the major contributions that these stories make to our lives is to remind us that we ourselves are most responsible for our own decisions and the consequences of those decisions. For the Greeks, the gods provide sort of a framework in which you have to operate. I liken the gods to what we might call the physical laws of the universe. So for example, Apollo doesn't care whether you believe in him or not. Apollo just is. Apollo is like gravity. You can ignore gravity all you want. You can deny its existence. But if you fall out of an eighth story window, you're going to hit the ground just as hard yeah. as someone who believes in gravity. So that's not the point. The point is you have to operate within these constraints. And what the Greeks thought of as their history, that is the fall of Troy, the wanderings of Odysseus, scholars tend to think of these as the, the poetic tradition. But within that, the, the narrator has a certain level of, of creative um, invention. And this is particularly true for the tragedians. They reworked the details of these stories uh, so that what was admirable in archaic times where democracy had never even been thought of uh, was less admirable in democratic times when you needed to collaborate, you needed to uh, be able to think creatively about uh, challenging problems. You needed to value the opinions and personhood of political opponents. These were just the ideas that we can glimpse in the epics that the tragedians really developed fully. Oh, that's interesting. So they sort of almost reevaluated and re-presented and re-judged the oral history of their society in, in the later works. They sort of revisited it, reanalyzed it. We can already see in the Odyssey a uh, re-evaluation of, of stories that we see in the Iliad. In other words, the recounting of events at Troy. When you hear characters in the Odyssey retell them, these are not stories of a great Greek conquest. They're stories of sadness and suffering and loss. So they're already reevaluating events that are celebrated in, in the Iliad. It is fascinating because I was, I was thinking about how we draw parallels to today. And sometimes you will see a, a movie or a television show that's based on a true story. And actually, when you find out what the true story is, they're often absolutely fascinating true stories, but they are quite severely different or they end totally differently yeah. or quite a lot of elements have been changed uh, but yeah there's a core to it and so in many ways we're doing exactly the same thing exactly we're sort of perfecting real life through the storytelling every retelling is a reinterpretation and it tells you what the teller cares about and values one of my great concerns about modern storytelling is how prevalent the theme of vengeance is and how it tends to be equated with justice mm. Whereas, for example, in the Oresteia, which is a trilogy of tragedies that I discuss in the book, uh, the traditional equation of vengeance with justice is shown to be completely counterproductive. It produces ever-escalating conflict and never-ending conflict, whereas a communal jury procedure serves the community better than this sort of eye-for-an-eye notion of justice. So to see modern storytelling celebrate vengeance as justice, I think is encouraging 
vigilantism in the modern world. It's encouraging us to dehumanize and and uh, even demonize political opponents. Um, the remarkable ability of these Greek stories to emphasize the essential humanity of every human being. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Nuance is lost in a lot of modern political discussions. You know, you're either this side or you're that side. And I always think, hang on, this component of your argument on side A actually I think is valid and this component of your argument on side B and you actually sometimes when you say actually you're both right and both wrong you get accused of both sides of being against them. Exactly this is the great challenge to anyone who wants to think creatively about these polarized positions that we're sort of locked into. Both sides are wrong and both sides maybe contain a grain of the truth. Mm. Uh, I also think that modern media do us a disservice in suggesting that uh, they're going to give equal time to both sides of an issue. Most issues have many sides. To reduce them to two sides is already a disservice. It also validates often or equates a pure falsehood Mm. with a fact-based opinion. Well, I was going to say sometimes there can be two areas and one side is factually correct and one side is completely obviously wrong and the truth doesn't lie in between those two it's not like the truth is halfway in between exactly and there's this shibboleth of balance in the media which i i respect the conceptual framework for having balance and seeing opposing views but not if those aren't actually valid opposing views you know we're not having a discussion about whether we should have pineapple on pizza for example because that's a personal choice. You know, we're discussing things like climate change or whatever, where the vast bulk of consensus is in one direction and a few fringe voices often funded by vested interest are in another. And it's the sort of the same. And if you look at smoking, how smoking was defended by the industrial complex around it, literally the same techniques of undermining the opponent's argument or suggesting that there are you know, differences of opinion, you must trust my opinions. Like, well, no, you, you can have an opinion, but they're not necessarily congruent with the truth. People are allowed to have opinions, but some of those opinions are patently absurd. And really, in an honest and democratic society, should be called out along with evidence that proves them to be absurd. It's very strange. We, you sometimes get a, a scientist who's studied for many, many decades a particular subject and a person with what might be termed an odd view based on very little substance. 
And you can see the scientists are sitting there going, I don't know why I'm bothering having this conversation. It'd be like me trying to play chess with a grandmaster. I, I know the basic rules of chess, but I am rubbish at chess. I would not say, well, actually, I think you'll find you should play chess this way. And they'd be looking at you going, you're just wrong. It's not even a discussion to be had. You just don't know what you're talking about. Um, and I do think the media should encourage nuance discussions, but that doesn't make for sound bites. That doesn't make for headlines scrolling along the bottom of the of the screen. Doesn't sell advertising, doesn't get people to tune in. No. Yeah. One of the wonderful things about the ancient Greeks was this openness to diverse opinions, but always with the recognition that you have to evaluate them on their merits, that not all opinions are equally valid, equally fact-based, but only if you hear them all, mm. you make an informed judgment and assessment, of course. And that is the fundamental skill that we have to cultivate as citizens of a democratic society. We have to be able to evaluate qualities of leadership, qualities of policies. So we have to become fact-based, open-minded, evaluative thinkers. We have to make the effort to think about these things as well. That's one of the curses, perhaps, of our modern age, where very few people are destitute but most people have got an excess it's certainly in the western world of, of things we're mostly warm we're mostly sheltered mostly well fed convenience is valued above all else you know convenient food convenient data media convenient communications and i and i wonder whether with convenience comes the simplification of arguments as well here's here's the position you should adopt not here's an opinion which you now have to analyze and think about Here's the position, you're on team A or you're on team B. And, you know, you listen to conversations or observe conversations on social media and you think, why have you got so angry so quickly? I'm just asking a question. You know, I'm not saying you're right or wrong. I'm saying, well, that's really interesting. Do you have any evidence to back that up? Are you saying I'm a liar? No, I'm just asking for evidence. You might turn out to be a liar. But <laughs> if, you, if you have no evidence at all, then yes, I might call you a lie, but at the moment I'm intrigued by your position and I would like to find out more. Asking for evidence is considered to be rude these days. Well, you touch on two very important features here. One is that critical thinking is effortful. It really uh, requires a lot of hard work and it's so much easier to seed decision-making to authoritative speakers. We'd like to just think that these powerful politicians or pundits have our best interests at heart, uh, and we can just go about our daily lives. Uh, but the reality is that that's very rarely the case. And frequently, people with power are using their power to advance their own interests at other people's expense. And one of the very important features of these ancient Greek stories is they teach us not to admire those people and not to be interested in furthering their aims. That is, we have to think for ourselves and recognize what is in our own interests. Now, the other piece of it that I think is fascinating is how quick we are to anger and how easy it is for politicians and pundits to inflame our anger. It turns out anger is a very easy emotion to elicit from people. It can have a constructive role to play. It can make us intolerant of injustice, and I think that's very valuable. But violent rage is counterproductive. And my previous book was called Enraged, Why Violent Times Need Ancient Greek Myths. And it's a similar format to Embattled in that it analyzes the epics, just the Iliad, 
and um, a couple of Greek tragedies, but focused very specifically on that question of rage and violent rage and how that's really not in our own best interest. Um, that, I think, is the genius of these stories, to, to encourage us to see that ideals of humanity and justice and equality, they don't require some extraordinary selflessness. They're actually in our own best interest. But politicians would rather have us be angry because that makes us easier to manipulate. Angry and afraid, that makes us very easy to manipulate. Yeah, bread and circuses. I mean, the Romans talked about you know keeping the populace happy with bread and circuses, and not really that much has changed, arguably. You know, there, there, are, there are people doing exactly that, distracting us. You know, some people have talked about sports being the literal circus. I mean, it's not really much has changed. They're almost literally, physically circuses with surrounding um, seats and people watching a certain number of very well-paid performers doing what they do. Uh, at the moment, they don't actually kill each other, but back in the day, they perhaps did, although some argument whether gladiators actually ever did really try to kill each other or they tried to put up a good fight and they might have got killed accidentally. But there's some argument they were quite valuable sports people, therefore you didn't really want to kill those uh, those famous people if you could avoid it. But did the ancient Greeks have a advice about how to control that anger the insight that it's not in your best interest. Mm. And when you read these stories and you see how violent rage proves completely counterproductive for the individual, it's a very sobering lesson. So for example, in the Iliad, Achilles rages at an insult to his honor, decides to stop fighting on his own team so that the Greeks will recognize how much they need him. Uh, And he's hoping that a lot of his own allies, fellow Greeks will die so that they'll recognize how valuable he is to the fighting effort. But in the course of that, his best friend also gets killed. And that's not an outcome that he would have wanted. And then in his uh, desire for vengeance, he kills monstrously, indiscriminately, and succeeds in killing the killer of his best friend. But it doesn't make him feel any better. Mm. And he continues to outrage the body and to grieve incessantly. He can't eat. He can't sleep. The only thing that makes him feel slightly better is this moment of empathy that he shares with the father of his greatest enemy, the father of the the killer he killed, who comes to ransom his son's body. And Achilles suddenly has this brief insight where he thinks, wait, the one thing that we all share is our vulnerability to suffering and death. And my own father is going to grieve just like this man when I die. And he's suddenly able to return the body to share a meal with his greatest enemy's father and then resume his life. So the, the idea that, that violent rage harms you yourself if you indulge in it, that there's nothing admirable in other people who succumb to violent rage, and that empathy is a much more constructive alternative. I mean, this is a text from 3,000 years ago it originated. It's incredible. It's fascinating. It's a very deep insight into human behavior. And and getting people to empathize with other people is quite a, again, it takes effort. You have to you have to stop yourself from typing out an angry reply to something because you've assumed they're being angry to you. you know, they, they might not be, they might be. And sometimes you take a deep breath or delete it or go about your business. But also sometimes trying to see it from the other person's perspective. I find in businesses is quite useful. Sometimes when you're having an argument over a contract, for example, you're thinking, why are they... What are they trying to protect with this clause? And if you actually have an open conversation, are you trying to protect this thing from happening, are you? Which I agree makes complete sense. So let's try and work out a form of 
of agreement that protects you and protects me. Let's try and empathize with each other's position and work out whether you're actually an idiot and it's not something we're going to have to compromise on. Or in fact, actually, I can see you've got a good point there and I don't object to it. Therefore, we can we can reach an agreement. And I often say to people, if your instant reaction is to write an angry reply to anything, just sit back, take a deep breath and double or triple think about what you're doing and whether it's actually constructive in any way. So, yeah, uh, it's interesting that that's a, a common human <laughs> failing and they clearly observed it in one of their greatest combat heroes. Would you describe Achilles as a hero? Well, you know, I never like to use that word. I, I really avoid it in my writing and in my teaching because it's sort of an empty box. Hero is whatever qualities you think are admirable. And so often when, when we use that word, we don't all mean the same thing by it. So I prefer to think he's definitely the leading protagonist in the Iliad. Right. And he is, by all accounts, the greatest fighter in the contest. He has the greatest military skill, martial skill. But of course, Odysseus offers a different model of military skill because he's the great strategist. And he ultimately, not Achilles, is responsible for the fall of Troy because he creates the deception that enables the Greeks to storm the citadel. So even that question of what constitutes a great warrior or a great leader, uh, we have various models for that. From the earliest accounts, the Greeks recognized that that great skill involved both physical prowess and verbal prowess, that is the ability to be effective in deed and in word, in battle and in counsel. And these, I think, are important attributes, especially as now, you know, our weaponry is so phenomenal. We can't lean into the violent military conflict. We need to focus on our verbal abilities. And when you talk about like a business deal, the most durable deals are the ones where everyone benefits. Everyone gets what they want. If you walk away from a business deal and you think, ha, I really got the better of that guy, that's not likely to be a durable arrangement. As soon as that other person can get out of the contract, they will yes. because it's not serving them well. But if you can negotiate a deal where everybody feels that they get what they wanted, and that, of course, is, is a model for political negotiation as well. And it's usually how all of these things are settled, unless one side is grotesquely disproportionately powerful than the other. And even in those circumstances where one side absolutely kind of crushes the other, unless they destroy the other, there is often a reversal. I mean, and again, the Greeks would talk about this, I'm sure, but the, just because you've defeated somebody doesn't mean it's over because they will try to yeah, restore the balance, if you like. Well, that's the great point about vengeance, right? So one day you're the Avenger, the next day you're the victim of the next Avenger. Mm. And this was something, the precariousness of human fortune is, is a theme that runs through the Odyssey. And it's one of the greatest arguments for treating people in your power well, mm. because you never know when the tables will be turned and you yourself will become the victim yeah. of somebody else who's using their power oppressively. And blood feuds, for example, are those crazy things. You know, Sometimes you look into these and nobody actually knows why they hate that other group. But <laughs> it's traditional. We raid them and we murder them uh, because they're bad and they did the same to you. And when did this start? Right. Generations ago. And nobody has a clue and nobody cares. They're just caught up in this cycle of violence. And yeah, as you say, it, it is incredibly destructive. It's very hard sometimes to walk away 
from that kind of conflict. Again, it requires effort. One of the features is thinking and considering evidence and not reacting with anger requires more energy, actually. There's this wonderful scene in the Iliad where two warriors, a Greek warrior and a Trojan warrior, meet in battle. And one of them is celebrated as really a phenomenal warrior. And the Greek warrior is just going to destroy the Trojan warrior. But as they approach one another, the Greek calls out, who are you? And the other one responds by giving his lineage, because this is a hierarchical society where who you are depends on who your parents were. Of course, by now we know, and the Greeks recognized by the fifth century, that your identity was what you said and did, not who your parents were. That shouldn't be the criterion. But these two guys talk to each other. And what they discover is that their ancestors, their great-great-grandfathers, had hosted one another in their homes. So what this means is that they themselves have inherited this relationship, what the Greeks called guest friendship, which is a system of obligations governing the relationship between guests and hosts. So they themselves are guest friends to one another. So they decide not to kill each other. And instead, they exchange armor so that everyone will know that they're guest friends with one another and they part as friends. And what this scene shows you is just sort of the fundamental basis for democratic government. Now, this is way before anyone had ever thought of democracy, but what you see is two people ready to kill each other who instead talk to one another, find out lots of things about their history and why they're each there, and then make a decision to honor a moral obligation. So they've inherited this guest friendship relationship, but they have to choose to honor it. That's a choice. And this is the basis for any kind of negotiation, that is recognizing the essential humanity of the person you're dealing with, seeing where you have common ground, where you don't, and then making a choice to honor your obligations to one another. I mean, if it didn't happen for real, it would be a great shame. But you can actually imagine that sort of thing happening because the combat was much more personal and close and introducing yourself and who you were, again, very medieval, you know, medieval heraldry and proclaiming your lineage and that kind of thing was sort of very much part of male and female identities to a certain extent. And uh, I can almost imagine that being a fictionalized version of something that probably did happen. It's a great story and it's a constructive story. Mm. It's not a story about somebody going out and pursuing vengeance and then feeling great after he avenges the death of some loved one. Because that's not real. That's not what happens. You know, if you suffer a loss and someone else is responsible, you can inflict all the harm on them you want. It won't bring back your beloved person. The reality is that vengeance is irrational and it's not emotionally satisfying. Mm. Whereas so many other ways that we can interact with one another are healthful and emotionally satisfying. I think the reason for that is that script writers are getting caught up in the same kind of revenge tropes and it it gives a sort of a simple form of direct motivation to a protagonist in 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 modern storytelling i wonder if we've kind of got a very reductive notion there's always good guys and bad guys in our modern stories and the greek stories are much more complex they're just a lot of guys Mm. and very few women (laughs) doing good and bad things and what they do is they evoke our evaluative capacity as viewers as audience members It's our responsibility to assess the actions because the characters don't necessarily see the consequences of their own choices. But it's not easy to say, well, is Achilles a good guy or a bad guy? 
is Odysseus a good guy or a bad guy? Well, it, it's complicated. <laughs> Odysseus's name itself comes from a Greek word that means to hate and to be hateful. So his name is kind of a combination of, it's a little bit like the English hateful. You know, if someone is hateful, they are filled with hate, mm. but they are also hated. So Odysseus is a role model and he's also a problem. The complexity of these stories, I think, really challenges us to bring our intellectual capacities to bear, particularly because these are not stories about us directly. So we don't have a vested stake in the outcome and we can be more objective about how the characters are behaving. Many of the characters say, well, God made me do it. But we can see that no God made you do that. You chose that on your own. The gods are just there kind of watching, enjoying the fun. <laughs> I mean, that gods, their pantheon actually reflects that. Because I often think you know, people talk about the, 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 the pantheons of gods and they, they often have remarkably human attributes, you know, jealousy, rage, love, lust. There's all sorts of human emotions embodied in the gods. They're just writ larger than us and they have more, more power than you know, us. Because they're anthropomorphic and they, they have these attributes that we associate with humanity, we tend to miss the fact that they are fundamentally the antithesis of human beings. Why? Oh, yes, go on. Because they don't, they don't die. Ah. What is the fundamental fact about being a human being? We are mortal. Gods are not mortal. They do not die. So they are not subject to the consequences of their own actions. They live eternally. They can do silly and stupid things and everyone laughs. They're not consequential. Any, any actions that the gods make are not consequential for gods. They can be anywhere in an instant. They don't need to sleep. They don't need to eat real food. They are the absolute antithesis of everything that makes us mortal. And by looking at how they operate, we can recognize what we need to do as human beings. If we behave as if we are gods, we're fools because we will suffer the consequences of that. So, for example, you have the, the leader of the Greek forces at Troy is Agamemnon, and he's trying to wield his authority as if he were a god. He thinks he can harm another one of his warriors and not receive the consequences. He thinks he can test his warriors without thinking things through. And, of course, this turns out very badly for him. He thinks he can head home and just show up and say, honey, I'm home and not think about how he should re-enter his home after a 10-year absence. And he's promptly murdered by his wife and her lover who has usurped royal power in Argus. So he's an object lesson in how not to behave. Many of these characters are really cautionary examples for us. We shouldn't think we're like gods. So in many ways, they're not meant to be admired. They're meant, they're meant to be illustrative of decision-making and, exactly. and the consequences of those decisions. So, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, this was the great thing. You know, the Greeks had this incredible idea that you could learn from experience. I mean, think about it. It's not truth given from an authoritative political source or an authoritative divine source. It's truth derived from experience. That's the basis of scientific inquiry. But the fiction of these narratives, which we might think of as fiction, the Greeks thought of as their history, we can learn from other people's experience. We don't have to make the same mistakes they did. We can learn from their experiences as well as our own. Oh, it's fascinating. We could talk for a long time about this. I am equally frustrated that we have lost so much from them, but also very grateful that we even have the amounts we have. Because I do wonder whether there are other 
societies that were producing such incredible content. We, we literally have none of it at all. I always wonder about Carthage, for example. We know so little about the Carthaginians, really. You know, we've got the archaeology, but don't have much in the way of works, written works, for example. But we do have some, you know, as you said, three, three to ten percent, roughly. Of the tragedies, yeah. And we don't right. know how many of these epic stories were swirling in archaic times. We have these compendiums of Homer, the Odyssey, and the Iliad. We have Hesiod. We have some archaic poetry, fragments of archaic poetry. We also have the comedies from the 5th century and the early 4th century, and these, I think, are an incredible trove. One of my concerns about modern comedy is how divisive it is, whereas, well, we only have what we call old comedy. It consists of 11 plays by Aristophanes, but these are such unifying forces. Aristophanes criticizes everybody, high-born, low-born, rich, poor, male, female, foreign, native-born. Uh, he goes after everybody. <laughs> <laughs> and there's something unifying in laughter. I mean, one of the things I think that, that most identifies an extremist is someone who can't laugh at themselves. And of course, laughter is a great antidote to, to anger. Mm. If we can only laugh, we would stop maybe being so, so angry. So yeah, I would love to do another project of this sort on Aristophanes. And my next project is going to be on Herodotus, who was a 5th century historian, 5th century BC historian, who introduced this concept of verifiability. He doesn't always uh, adhere to it, but he coined the term historie, or where we get our word history, which was an inquiry into the facts so as to make a rational assessment or evaluation. And he, he countered mythos or myth with that. So mythos was a narrative, a narrative tale. Maybe true, maybe not true, who knows? We can't establish the fact of that. Uh, but by rational inquiry, and looking at what evidence survives, we can arrive at some form of historie, some form of history. So yeah, I think we have, I mean, we have to lament the, the paucity of the evidence that survives, but we should also celebrate it and not distort it. One of the dangers is when we bring ourselves to everything that we read or encounter. Uh, and so the challenge with these stories is to see what's there and let it take us somewhere new. It often surprises us doesn't say what we expected to say. Uh, it has been an absolute delight chatting away with you. If people want to find out more about your work, how do they sort of find out more about it? You've got your books, which we've mentioned. Are there any other books you want to mention that people could look at? Well, no, those are, those are I think, are the okay. two that are, that are aimed particularly at non-specialists. Anyone who is concerned about what's happening in the world today and maybe not aware of the valuable assistance that we can get from ancient Greek epics and tragedies. So I'm not writing for specialists. I'm not writing for people who maybe are very familiar with these stories. And, and each chapter in the book consists of a narrative retelling of some relevant tales and then an analysis of the tales. So don't feel that you need to come to these books with any prior knowledge. Wow. Um, but yeah, the, the best way to get to know what I'm, what I'm about, you can find me on the Sarah Lawrence College website. Wonderful. Thank you very much for spending some time with us. I most appreciated. That was absolutely fascinating. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to dig up my classical works that I've got on the bookshelf and, and revisit them, I think, because you've given me some food for thought. And, and as we said, it takes effort sometimes to understand and, and interpret these stories. So thank you. Well, thank you very much. It was really a delight to talk with you. Uh, and good luck with your podcast. I think it's a wonderful <laughs> effort. Uh, and I really applaud all the work that you're doing. 
Fabulous. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.